Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Welcome to another chat of Wagon Wheel on Spotify Greenroom. Thank you to our sponsors, Manscaped. You can get 20% off with the code REDINCA, all one word, and you can look after your balls the way that, I don't know, T20 players use a towel to look after their balls, so to speak. Also, it's a Bodyline t-shirts for all their cricket t-shirts, and thanks to all the people on Patreon. And also buy me a coffee, since I had to open up one of those because of the weird payment thing that's going on with India at the moment. But... Patreons, obviously, if you're on one of the tiers, I can't remember which one, you get to be able to ask questions first on the wagon wheel. So what have we got first? Will Cooling says, do you think Ben Stokes gets back into the England T20 side? I don't see how he gets in without dropping Milan. Well, I think you might have answered your question there, Will. No, I mean, I think for a long time that was the obvious spot. Stokes comes in and bats number three. I don't think he needs to particularly open, but... I think he'd be a good player at number three, um, and he gives him a bit more flexibility with the ball and is also probably a slightly better fielder than Milan as well. So I think that makes sense. Uh, Wills also said, uh, where this heavy due is our argument for giving the side bowling second a new ball after 10 overs. The due situation is something that probably needs a bit more consideration just in, in general. I think they're probably, well, if this was a real sport, which I could start almost any answer with, there would be committees being formed. Uh, there would be money. Uh, I've already talked about this before. Um, uh, scientists would get involved. We'd probably give some money to a bunch of different universities in different places to see if the Jew issue is different. Um, you'd probably get some mathematicians involved as well um, for certain grounds and, uh, and all these sorts of things. Instead, we shall continue to bumble forward um, and, and just see how that goes. But, yeah, I think at a certain point, I, I don't know if it matters. As someone... I used to play um, junior cricket in, in Melbourne. And when the Jew came in, in for some of the morning games, especially some of the end of season games, even if you replaced the ball very soon after, it was just, just as bad with the new ball. I'm not sure if that particularly works. Also, giving a new ball suddenly at the 10 over mark, you know, fundamentally changes the game. Should it be an older ball that's just been used a little bit? All those sorts of things. Uh, but yeah, something about the Jew and the toss in T20 cricket probably has to be looked at. And uh Awesome Awesome to know that we probably won't look at either of those things going forward. Uh, Christopher from Patreon says, is the net run rate the best way to decide teams level on points? I find it too complex to work out, but then alternatives don't look that fair. I don't think it's that complex. Um, it was actually something I'd never really done a lot of work with net run rate because 
I hadn't had to as a writer that much. But when I started working with teams, it was obviously something I had to look up. I think the uh, the Scotland one was the, was the job where it was the most important. Um, I can't remember, uh, you know, how it was important, but I know that at one stage, look, it seems like a fairly normal uh, way of looking at things. In some ways, actually, over a long period, let's say over 10 games, I almost think the net run rate is a better, it gives you a better idea of how good a team is. Like, in T20 cricket, I, I'm, I'm assuming, I can't remember what the numbers are, but about 30 to 40% of the games are close, right? Which means that, let's say you've played 10 games and you've had four close games and you've won all four of those. <clears throat> Sorry, pardon me. And you've won all four of those off the last ball, right? That's not a very realistic thing, but your record might look quite good at that point. You might look like a, you know, a seven and three team when in actual fact you're closer to a five and five team. Um, that run rate often is a little bit more honest with this, even though you, you can have a couple of big losses um, that can obviously uh, change it. But over the course of a season, I'm probably more interested in, you know, how you are doing on net run rate. Now, I would probably look at it for each different zone of the game and all these sorts of things. But um, essentially, I can understand why it works. Um, it's not that complex. Although, I'm trying to remember this, there's a tricky thing about it when you're trying to work it out, when you're trying to work out non-complete overs. And I can't remember what it is, but it's, yeah, and like, obviously it's not exact, like exact, exact, um, <laughs> if you have non-complete overs. Um, I'm trying to remember the mathematical equation that annoyed me when I was working for Scotland. But I remember having to contact people at the ICC and just go, this isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. Um, but no, I, I think it's a good system overall. Um, and I haven't come up with a better one, uh, Christopher, so we're just going to leave it there. Ian from Patreon says, Tamal Mills' injury and general bad luck with them made me think of players have not reached the heights they could have thanks to injury. Simon Jones and James Taylor are other good examples from England this century who are worldwide talents that um, injuries robbed us off. I mean, there's so many. Ian Bishop's probably one of the main ones. I don't think we ever had a tall, fast West Indian bowler who could swing it. Um, not that Kirtley and Courtney and um, Garner didn't have that skill uh, on occasion, but they weren't swing bowlers. The ability to combine those all those things together, Ian Bishop, I think, is um, comes to mind straight away. Shane Bond is obviously another player that I thought was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, someone, this might be sound, sound a bit weird, but someone like Shane Watson, who I remember watching him when he could bowl at 90 miles an hour. You know, he was basically a bit like Freddie Flintoff at a time in his career and a, probably a better version of Freddie Flintoff. To go back from that to bowling 80 miles an hour when he could, or 75 miles an hour mostly, uh, really changed his how we think about him as a cricketer, I think. Um, so we had him for a long period, but we maybe didn't have the version of, of Shane Watson that some of us saw in Shield cricket way way back um, in the early 2000s. Um, who were some of the other? Uh, I said Shane Bond already, didn't I? Um, uh, Mustafa Zaraman, I still think uh, the Fizz is, you know, just an absolutely um, extraordinary player. I think it's also changed players too. Um, I think you look at guys like David Warner, Absolute power player when he first started. Now he really struggles to hit sixes consistently. Um, I've seen him doing rage hitting. He doesn't hit the ball particularly far. He doesn't hit the ball that much farther than I can hit the ball. Um, although not at the moment with my arm. But And this is a guy that, you know, could flat bat Dale Steen back over his head um, with ease. These days he just doesn't have that power because of his shoulder. So I think, you know, and, and th- these are fairly normal things that happen to athletes. Um uh, one of the more interesting ones in the NBA is um, Derek Rose, who, you know, was an incredible natural athlete, became an MVP very young, and then his body sort of fell 
a partner around him and he's become a different player. And some, in some ways, those players go on to be more interesting. Uh, I mean, Shane Warne, probably because he didn't have the snap in his finger and his shoulder going forward in his career, became a better bowler in some ways through his limitations. Um, you know, developing that straight ball, I mean, he was lucky that the DRS came around, or that, sorry, not the DRS in his case, but the umpires started giving out more LBWs because they could, you know, they understood from the TV technology more of those balls were hitting the stumps um, that uh, that changed. But, yeah, so sometimes injuries change people in those places. But I think, I, I think for us, um, uh, I, I certainly think that someone like um, Ian Bishop uh, was was probably one of the main ones where you just thought, well, that could be absolutely anything. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anyone else that I'm missing, anyone else obvious. No, I think those are the, sort of the main ones off the top of my head. I'm sure someone's already put someone else in chat. But uh, thanks for your question, Ian. Christian says, uh, when you're looking at player stats, how do you check out um, – how do you check out that an exceptional average or matchup is not misleading? Uh, what do you look further into apart from sample size? I'm not a huge fan of matchups in general, if it's individual players, because they are quite often um, small sample size. Uh, what I generally try and do is I try and get as much information as possible. So if I have a player who, for instance, is let, let's Rohit Sharma, he's very bad against left arm seam. I have 800 balls of him being bad against it, left arm seam. Ishan Kishan, I probably have 150 balls of him being quite good against left arm seam. That's enough for me to at least understand that he should be able to do it. But then probably what I'm going to look at with Ishan Kishan is if those numbers hold up in other formats because he probably has faced more left arm seam first-class cricket in, in, in one-day cricket, in list A cricket and those sorts of things. Um, so I'll be looking at that. Um, it's very, very rare when you look at a player over 50 balls that it doesn't play out over 200 balls or 1,000 balls. Things regress. You know, you, I think I, I saw the other day, um, in the last five years, Steve Smith averages 120 against leg spin um, in the IPL. So you do get cases like that. I think Devin Conway's got a few of those um, in his record at the moment as well. But as a general rule, um, there's always a, a fairly evident pattern, even in a few balls. And, and when you go back, uh, and use video analysis as well. If someone has, you know, a low strike rate against something or a, or a high dismissal rate against something, you go back and look at the video, it almost always backs it up, even if it's only 30 balls or 25 balls. But I do do think you have to be quite careful with these things. There's also, you know, and when you have 30 balls, it could be one off spinner, but it could be, you know, um, R. Ashwin or Gareth Batty or, you know, at one of the top level um uh, specialist off spinners in the world that they've faced a lot of. So you, you have to have a look at those sorts of things as well. Um, but yeah, I, there's, I can't think of any analyst, and I could be wrong here, but none of the, the analysts that I'm friends with that look at one number. One number doesn't really tell you anything in cricket. Um, it doesn't really tell you anything in most sports. Most of those one number stats are really for TV companies and websites. Um, they're not how analysts look at athletes, I don't think. Well, I hope not. Ramnath says, what changes would you make to the current T20 World Cup format? Would you structure it similar to the Football World Cup? Um, how many teams would you have in the tournament? I would, I don't know, that's a really big question because I need to go back and look at all the numbers. Uh, straight away, I'd probably have a 16-team tournament um, and I'd be looking at making that, you know, 20 teams, 22 teams, 28 teams, 
30 teams, 32 teams, whenever uh, was feasible. I think that if you're going to have a proper tournament, I think it needs to run a little bit longer. Um, I understand the, the, you know, the original reason why this was just a pop-up tournament, right? Um, but if you really want to know who the best team is, I, you know, I don't know if it needs to be this short. Um, I've got no problem with teams playing more often. There seems to be a lot of big breaks for some of these teams at the moment. And also having the qualifying first round first makes this tournament longer without it actually giving anything. Uh, we have two games a day at the moment. Could we not have three games a day or four games a day? Um, you know, pay TV subscribers have Red Button. Uh, digital platforms have the ability to put on extra channels. Um, I, I really think we can play more cricket and give fans more of a chance to watch more things. Uh, we're going to miss games, but that's that's how... For some reason in cricket, we have decided that everything needs to be a standalone game. That's not quite the way that other sports work sometimes. And if possible, it's probably not the way that sports should work. Uh, especially towards the end when you're having the games for the final. So um, I, I'd have to have a look at it. I'm not a big, um, I'm not a big expert on, on structure, structuring these tournaments or anything, but I certainly think we need more games and more teams, um, if nothing else, and to get rid of the, the stupid first round as it currently isn't really doing anything other than starting the tournament poorly, which I don't understand. Graham says, do you think the ICC is missing a trick by not putting a proper highlights package up? On their website or YouTube channel, five minutes on a difficult-to-find and navigate website can't be the best way to promote the tournament. Do they not have the rights to share longer highlights? Um, I think part of this is to do with the Facebook deal, I would assume, um, because they haven't been putting much on Twitter either, which, again, I assume is to do with... Uh, the, so there's a big um, fight in cricket at the moment. Fight is the wrong word. Facebook is really trying to own cricket, you know, uh, as someone who's, you know starting his own business in cricket, uh, it's certainly something that I've noticed that Facebook are very, very forthright in trying to get involved in this. YouTube are playing, having a bit of a play at cricket as well, or they're not quite sure what to do with it, but they understand um, the Indian um, YouTube demographics and Pakistani and Bangladeshi um, ones, I, I assume, going forward as well. But, but when it comes to it, yeah, I think, um, that I think the problem is that by signing this big Facebook deal, which is, I'm assuming, why all that they have a clip on Facebook every 12 seconds. It's actually probably not for the betterment of the game, although I'm sure the ICC make a lot of money out of it. Um, but it's not spreading the game. And look, I, I talk about this with cricket boards all the time. It's the same thing again and again and again. They quite often take the short term decent money, sometimes not even that decent money. Um, and what they don't do is actually take a deal that will help grow the game fundamentally. I think in a World Cup like this, you really want all the clips to be on TikTok and YouTube and Twitter and everywhere. You don't just want a majority of them on Facebook, especially as Facebook's an older market anyway, which is not really a T20 market, I wouldn't have thought. The other thing is, Graham, to come back to your point, cricket highlights are terrible. There is absolutely no reason now. I, so, so I go on my NBA app and I can watch the condensed version of the game. I think it's about 10 minutes for a normal game and about 20 minutes for a playoff game. Um, and in that, I get a really good idea of how both teams are running their offense, how both teams are running their defense, a couple of the, you know, the big plays. You can work out who the good players are. And then if I want to watch the proper game, I just put on the proper game. But after I've watched the condensed highlights, I've seen quite a bit of the, the, the scoring or the best defensive plays. We could put every ball up. 
in 20 minutes of a T20 game. <laughs> we could put every single ball up online. You could have a condensed highlights as well, which is, you know, like at the moment, a lot of the highlights is absolute nonsense. A lot of the highlights is the commentary. It's like, you know, what has he said about this thing? And what has he said about this thing? And it's like, you know, I, I you know, the, the two Milnovers against Scotland, the, the, the um, maiden uh, followed by the, um, the boundaries, you could show them in their entirety. You just pick up the bowler two-thirds of the way into their run-up. You have the shot. If it goes to the boundary and you want to follow the ball, you, you follow it. If you don't, you don't. That's also a thing. I mean, it's remarkable to me. I, you know, I think in a, in a day's test match you get uh, between 12 and 18 minutes of actual cricket being played, as in the ball is live and is out in the field and someone is running the bowler and someone is batting and someone has hit it somewhere and all those sorts of things. We could show all of this. And I've talked to cricket boards about this and they're like, oh, great idea. And nothing ever happens from it. So I don't know exactly why they don't do this. Um, Highlights packages in cricket are not very good and have never been any good. And as I said, I think they're made for the wrong reasons. I think they're made um, to make TV companies look good more often than not, right? Rather, and and some some of the TV companies of recent times and some of the ICC and Sky um, highlights have been really good to capture the mood of the game. But when I, as I said, when I go to my app um, on NBA, I have about four or five different versions of highlights I can watch, and we don't have that in cricket. And it, uh, you know, the ability to to go through and watch um, every ball of a of a Test match or a T ten twenty game um, on a highlights package would be incredible. Um, and we don't do it. Uh, so thank you that, uh, to everyone from Patreon. Remember, if you want to ask a question straight up on this show. Um, go across to Patreon um, and it uh, and ask away. But let us get to the people in the room. Fahan. Hello. My question is regarding, uh, it's a complex one actually, regarding IBL. Okay. Like in the 70s, if, uh, I think you know it better, like England was a hub of cricket, right? Every player from all mm. the countries used to go to England mm. and play there in the county. And the teams got better. Like Pakistan got better. Uh, New Zealand got better and the English team was struggling but like they should have been playing better cricket but they were not playing that even though everybody was getting benefited from the county structure and the problem they had apparently was they had so many players they were, it was sometimes difficult to choose the best eleven. do you think IPL is causing the same problem for Indian cricket team now? I think it's important to know that through the 60s and 70s England wasn't a bad team they became a bad team in the 80s and then really struggled in the, in, in the 90s, but they weren't a bad team in the 80s, specifically. Uh, sorry, in the 70s or the 60s. How much of that is less to do with this league that you're talking about and more to do with just problems within their cricket? They still had a class structure within their cricket up until the 90s. I mean, realistically, it was overseas Australian players and coaches that kind of dismantled the class structure of English cricket, which was holding back their cricket. They had, if you, you talk to England players from the, more so from the 90s, they already knew what cricket should be and their, um, the board wasn't really allowing them to do that because there was no centralised contracts, which means that, you know, the famous one is that up until, was it two or three years ago, Darren Goff and Jimmy Anderson had bowled the same amount of red ball deliveries, except that one of them had bowled 80% of them in test cricket and the other one bowled 60 or 70% of them in first-class cricket. Right. So when you are, and and obviously Anderson's a different kind of athlete to uh, to, to Goff. So Goff was always going to, you know, grind himself into the ground a little bit. But the point with that is, 
is that these players knew that they were that they were overly tired from the county system, that the county system wasn't particularly helping them the way that it should be helping them, um, and that they weren't prioritising international cricket. What the overseas players were doing was using county system as almost like maybe a training camp is wrong, but like a skill development thing. And then when they went off to play, you know, for their home team, it wasn't in the middle of the county season quite often, right? So what that meant was that, that they were fully fit. That's not quite the case with the IPL, right? The IPL is, is, is very different in many different ways to that. A, the IPL from the start has opened up Indian cricket. So we now have access to Indian cricketers who beforehand couldn't get through the, you know, the, the close-knit Karnataka you know, group or the Delhi group, or, you know, you had to know someone or your dad had to know someone or you had to go to the right school or you had to be middle class, right? But that's not quite the case in, in Indian cricket now because of the IPL. I think what, though, it's still the fundamental thing is that for a West Indian player or a South African player or the old Sri Lankan player, they are using it, to, again, to top up their skills. So they're already really good players. Then they come out and they try and prove themselves and make their money. They take that back to India. But don't forget, all those players are playing in their own local leagues, right? So they are, by design, more rounded players than the Indian players, right? So if you're, if, if you're a South African... Uh, you're saying that as Indian players are not playing in other leagues. So that is a disadvantage. It's a hu- I think that's a huge, dis- if, I, if I was Raul Dravid, right, and, you know, I might, uh, you know, I know Raul well enough, I might even send him an email about this. I don't think he can change it. But if I was Raul Dravid, I took over this team, I'd be so annoyed that my players can't develop T20 skills in really interesting leagues, like, forget the PSL, because that's not going to happen, right? But the CPL and uh and the hundred are really really and and probably the big bash and the manzanzi those four leagues are really interesting in how different they are to the ipl so if you are if you're colin munro um uh who has excelled in what two or three maybe four leagues around the world he's such a more rounded player than uh, quite a lot of the indian players now India's tried to get on top of that by having these constant tours and, and, well, and, and everything that Raul Dravid sort of set up at the lower level. It's not the same as having to play for your money in a CPL league, right? It's not the same as, as, as having to do that and, and the, the pressure that you get. No one really cares if you fail at India A level, right? Or if, you, if your strike rate's not as high as it should be. You're going to have to, it doesn't matter how famous an Indian player you are, if you go and play in the CPL um, and you fail five games in a row, the owner's going to be upset, right? Because he's spending money on you, and you, you know you're supposed to be his box office player. Those sorts of things on their own. Before you think about the skill and development and everything there. So what happens in county cricket is you hit the, the old the old phrase about county cricket is it was a finishing school. If it's the entire school, that's not as good. Because how can you be a good player of spin if you only play in county cricket? You can't. We know that. There ain't no pitches that spin. The only pitch that spins a little bit is um, Somerset down at Taunton. Um, and even then, you know, I think I've statistically proved this time and time again. It doesn't, it doesn't spin anywhere near like an Asian pitch does. And that's the only pitch in England that spins, right? So, it, and it's a similar thing with the IPL um, in that you are, you know, it's a great league. 
but it doesn't, it probably in some ways that I, I don't want to say the players are coddled, but it's such a professional league that some of the other players who go around the world probably are a little bit more, God, what's the best way of putting it? Um, in charge of their own destiny, right? Because you have to be, you know, if you're, if you're playing in all these other leagues, you know, in India, everything is looked after for you and it's great. And you can focus on your cricket and there's four coaches if you're playing outside of those leagues, you have to be a little bit smarter. You might need your own, um, you know, physio. You might need your own diet- dietary help. You might need your own specialist coaches. All these sorts of things that probably will help Indian cricketers um, going forward. So I think in that way, it's probably like county cricket. But I don't think, and I think there are probably other problems to uh, the IPL as well in that, as I said, it probably helps the overseas players more than it does the domestic players at times. Um, but it's still, you know, you'd probably rather have the world's strongest league at home. It's just how you work with it. Um, and at the moment, I don't think it's necessarily being worked with. Um, and, and it's also tough. You know, once you have a league like that, um, and we see this with international football and international basketball, um, you know, you've, you've got... Uh, you know, a a team turns up at a world cup and they want to use their player in a particular position. And that player hasn't played that position in two years um, because they've been playing for a league. Those things happen. And and that is part of, you know, that's part of what the IPL does. Um, And it's why so many of these international teams turn up for the, for our world T20 and all they pick is openers. And uh, why so many of them struggle with their middle orders when they get to these tournaments. Uh, But great question, mate. I really like that. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Direct Cheetah. There's a name. Hello. Do you think the first two games, obviously, we saw Indian batting struggle versus spin, and obviously, the IPN too, they struggled a lot. Kohli or strikes at 93, go with that 109 and KL at 103. Do you think they need someone who could bat aggressively, like a strike rate of 150? Uh, so you're basically saying do India need more attacking players against spin? Well, Rohit Sharma just took down Rashid Khan. Um, I think the problem with the way that India play spin and seam bowling um, and the way that their batting order is set up is that everyone tries to get in and then tries to score quick. Um, and the problem with that is that you have a lot of people who don't score that quick for long periods of time. Um, I think we saw against Afghanistan how that works um, on the other side um, sometimes, which can work quite well. But India, whether it be one-day cricket or T20 cricket, for a long time have been investing in anchors and telling everyone that they need to bat as long as possible. And that's what players are doing. Um, yes, it would be great if you could find a player with a strike rate um, against spin of 150. Let me tell you this. There ain't many players in the world that can do that. That's not a natural skill. It's not something that people do very much. And most of those players are quite limited um, in that they usually attack one kind of spin. Cameron Akmal? Might be one of the few in the world um, that legitimately can hit all kinds of spin um, and score at a high s- strike rate. Um, I, I did that. I did the maths a while back. I think of the top fifty run scorers in T Twenty cricket, four of them score quicker against spin than they do against pace. The players that you're talking about realistically don't exist. I mean, you're right. I don't. I don't think you're wrong at all. Um, I think one of India's problems is perhaps not scoring against spin quickly enough. Um, uh, and not putting pressure back on the spinners, I think, is, is the bigger one, which is something that, you know, if you look historically is the way that Indians used to play spin. But there's been a lot of, I think there's been a lot of movement in Indian cricket towards playing seam bowling. 
And uh, I know in first-class cricket, obviously, the seam bowlers have started to take, take over and there's a lot of skills now um, involving that. I wonder if um, the players are just, we're just going through an age where they're just not as dominant against spin as they used to be. But, but it's a really interesting question. Thank you for that. There you go. Hi, Jared. Can you hear me? I can. What's your question, mate? Yeah, so I wanted to, uh, this is a bit of an analytic question. So while you're trying to analyze teams, so the mm. results are one thing, right? So you know that, okay, out of the 10 last matches India have played, maybe they've lost six, for example, or one six maybe. So how deep do you go into that? How do you see that where they have played? Like uh, if you're considering that of the last 10 matches, India played the last three while they batted, sec while they batted first. So how much of a difference does that make while you're trying to analyze the game? And uh, they were playing three seamers and two spinners. And maybe out of the two spinners, there was due and their spinners could not perform well. So how much uh, of a focus goes into the depth of the analysis? Yeah, I mean, I don't even look at records over the last 10 games. I'm not really that interested in what a team's record is over 10 games. If I'm looking at a team, I'll probably be looking at them over the last three years. So I'm hoping that there's a lot more than 10 games there. Um, <clears throat> also, I don't, I don't generally look at international T20 records that much because they're kind of nonsensical. Teams play a series here and a series there. Um, they don't use their full players all the time. They try a bunch of younger players. We almost never see full-strength T20 teams at international level outside of World Cups. So, no, I don't really look at any of those things. I'd probably look at um, overall records over a long period of time, including their domestic T20 records um, when I'm looking at players. Uh, and if I'm looking at a team, yeah, I'd look at, I'm trying to think, maybe if I'm being friendly, I'd look at in the last two, two and a half years uh, would be the, the smallest sample size I would look at. Um, but yeah, I no, I'm not that interested in what's happened in the last um, in, in in a ten game sample size in international cricket. Also, when when you play international T20, example, like sorry, I was just an example. So no, no, but that's what I mean. I I would never look at something like that. So so the questions you're talking about in the Jew and everything over a long period of time, they your players will have to play with you and have to not play with you, right? Over a short period of time, you might have a whole series where you keep losing the toss and you keep having to play with you. But over a 30 or 40 games or 50 games, um, that's not going to be the case, right? Everyone is going to um, go up against you and everyone's going to bat first and second. At, you would hope a similar amount of time um, over that 50 games, unless one of the teams wants to bat first a lot, of course, like Afghanistan. So I'm not particularly worried about that sort of stuff because over the time it will, it will flush out. A 10-game period is what, where you would have that. Also, international series are matchup series, right? So... Cricket is a matchup sport pretty much all the way through um, until you get to a World Cup. So if you think about it, like you play two or three or five T20s against the team, um, you can be the best team in the world, but that other team might have a really good matchup against you and they end up, you know, drawing the series or even winning the series against you. Um, and so that will, that will warp your record as well. So that's why you have to look at these things over a long period with lots of different games. But I very rarely, I don't spend a lot of time looking at international T20 records because I don't trust them. I don't think the best players play. Um, uh, I don't think teams really prepare for bilateral series in the way that they do, even for one-day cricket, but certainly for test cricket. Um, so I'm more looking at the individual players and how they fit together for a team.
um, do you agree with Michael Morgan? Michael Vaughan's tweet that he Almost is never. Sorry, sorry, I missed that. Uh, do you agree with Michael Vaughan's uh, tweet that India is playing 2010s cricket? No, they're not playing 2010 cricket. I, I think, and I've said this over a long time. I think Australia. I'm, I reckon I say this every week on Wagon I think Australia and India specifically are obsessed with players batting big and anchors, and this idea that. I mean, the two people who, who ruined um, uh, Rishabh Pant as a T20 player was Ricky Ponting and Ravi Shastri, right? Or, or you could add Virat Kohli to that. Everyone kept telling him he had to bat through the innings. He doesn't have to bat through the innings. A man can make 30 runs off 10 balls, right? If he averaged 30 in T20 cricket um, at a strike rate of 180, what on earth do you need him to bat through the innings for, right? You can find, you can find someone else to bat through the innings. You can't find someone else who can make 30 off 18 balls every game or off 15 balls. So, yeah, I think there's certainly a part of that. Um, you can see it in India's one-day cricket as well. You can see it in Australia's one-day cricket. You see it in Australia's use of Glenn Maxwell. They don't really understand how to use Glenn Maxwell. Like, the, other, the last game that they played with him, he was down to bat at number four. They lost a couple of wickets, so they put him in at number four, and it's like, well, it's 14 balls into the innings. Surely the entire point of Glenn Maxwell is overs 16 to, uh, sorry, 6 to 14. That's when Glenn Maxwell is one of the best players in the world. Um, you've got Stoinis and Wade. You they could have sent Ashton Agar up the order, right, if they, if they were that worried about that, that period. So um, I, I think in that way it's a, it's a more old-school way. But I don't think there, <laughs> there aren't that many. I mean, look at, look at Pakistan. I think Pakistan have a phenomenal play, a t- a team. They're still playing quite old-fashioned T20 cricket. Um, uh, outside of the West Indies and England and maybe Afghanistan? Are there that many teams out there playing a really progressive international brand of T20 cricket? I don't see them. And England and West Indies were doing it last time. You could argue Afghanistan were at the last World Cup as well. They just weren't as good as they are now. Um, so, yeah, I think there are a lot of teams stuck in, a, in an older-style T20 um, uh, mindset. I think there's still a lot of coaches around the world who are telling their players um, after they hit a boundary to hit a single. And that's not what you should be doing. If you're good enough to hit a boundary where you're completely on top of the bowler and you have a matchup in your favor, you should be trying to maximize that matchup. And I don't think that's how teams train players at a younger level. And I don't think that's how international teams think enough as it is. And I think now, I can't remember who it was, but one of the commentators the other day was saying, oh, um, uh, he took one too many risks. Uh, it's like, Every time you try and hit a boundary in T20 cricket, you're trying to take a risk. Every time you try and take a single, you're trying to take a risk. It's a risky game, and we're still thinking about it from minimizing risks rather than the opposite, which is maximizing your efficiency. So um, I don't think India is – I don't think there are 2000 – what would you have to be to be a 2010 IPL uh, – sorry, 2010 T20 team? Um, you still have to be bowling a lot of Yorkers as your speciality, um, you'd still be using really, really one-dimensional pinch hitters. Uh, you wouldn't be moving your batting order around very much outside of the pinch hitters. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I don't really think that's the case. I just think there are other teams that are better and are thinking about it more. Um, I think that India's a bit of a flawed team, that, but a team with a lot of good players in it. But thanks for your question, mate. Baska. You got it. Yeah, so... Uh, I wanted to ask you about this all-rounders in the Australian team and I, I know you have written about it in that way. So, like, I was just looking at the 2015 World Cup and uh, one of the things which came across to me that they had Watson, Maxwell and Faulkner 
And that is the thing which give them the most flexibility in terms of like, uh, not matchup as per se, but just the depth. Uh, and this year also, if you look at the lineup, they have Stoinis, Marsh and uh, uh, Maxwell again. So why did they, and you, you talked a little about how Australia's uh, batting uh, mantra is not the right way. But uh, given there are so many all-rounders, why can't they just implement a much more aggressive strategy given that what the all-rounders are doing? Because Pakistan has a 8-6 kind of a split. I think Australia also has a, like an 8-7 kind of a split in terms of batting bowling but uh, why are they not going so hard and why are the all-rounders not, not so useful in T20s versus in uh, one-day cricket okay so the big the big thing about that 2015 World Cup is that's the last World Cup that people weren't attacking the middle overs right so the last World Cup people really attacked in the middle overs uh, England completely changed the way that one-day cricket was played India would attack more especially towards the sort of back end of those middle overs uh, which meant that you in 2015, you could get by with Maxwell and Watson as your fifth bowler um, uh, without too much problems. If uh, you know, uh, as as I said before, a fully fit Watson is not actually a particularly you know he's not the worst fifth bowler in the world. Um, the biggest problem with him is he couldn't bowl all the time. He didn't always want to bowl as well, uh, which makes sense because he knew it would affect his his earning at the end of his uh, career. So. Um, in 2015, you could get by with a fifth bowler in one-day cricket who would just hurry through their overs, and it wouldn't affect your team that much, right? By 2019, the game had fundamentally changed with the fact that England, I think, was scoring at something like 5.9 runs and over from overs 10 to 40, right? Now, if you're doing that against frontline bowlers, you can imagine what England were doing when part-timers came on. Right? They were trying to end part-timers in that period. And then you were going up against Shikadawan and um, uh, Rohit Sharma and Virat Kohli and these sorts of players, again, fully set in the middle order. Uh, sorry, in the middle overs. Again, they could score quite easily at six and seven and eight runs and over um, when they needed to against those kinds of bowlers, which meant that your fifth bowler suddenly became a big deal in a way that it really hadn't been all the way through the history of ODI cricket. Beforehand, you just tucked them in the middle overs, you gave them the Scott Styrus overs, um, and you forgot about it, right? T- T20 cricket is not really structured in that same way, in that outside of probably overs seven, eight, nine, there is no real hiding of a fifth bowler. And there hasn't been more or less since the beginning of T20 cricket. Um, and so you can't get through four overs of that kind of bowler um, in that kind of format. Now, what you're talking about before when you're talking about Faulkner, Watson, Maxwell, if it, those, those sorts of players, so Faulkner, it, let's take peak Faulkner, right, when he could really bat and when he could really bowl, is a genuine all-rounder. Shane Watson, um, when his body was fully fit, again, is a genuine all-rounder. Uh, when he wanted to bowl. Um, and so what you then have is a situation where Australia has never had Faulkner at peak batting, peak bowling for a long period of time. Um, he's finally bowling well again, I think, at the moment, but his batting, I think, has disappeared from view as far as I could tell. I'm not even sure he gets used it with a bat anymore. Um, and, uh, you, you know, and then you have someone like Maxwell who could only be used for specific matchups on specific pitches more often than not right? The difference between that and what you're talking about with Pakistan, 
Shadab Khan can bowl in any particular game. There's no game that he's not going to be able to bowl in. You could say the same about Muhammad Hafiz. So straight away, they have two guys who have the ability to bat in their top seven or in their top eight um, who can fundamentally bowl their overs and also can uh, play a role with the bat. That is a big difference between Shane Watson being able to bowl more often than not um, uh, and Glenn Maxwell being able to bowl when everything is in his favor. That's what I'm trying to get through to people, right? Which is, it's the same with, it's the same with Moeen Ali. So if you have, if you have Moeen Ali and Ben Stokes as your fifth bowler, I think you probably have a problem within your bowling lineup because neither of them are locked on frontline bowlers. If you have Moeen Ali as your sixth bowler, but you also have five genuine frontline bowlers around Moeen Ali, Moeen Ali becomes really dangerous. Because at that stage, you only use Mo and Ali when it's in your, in your advantage, right? And that is the difference of the, the way that those players. So if you put Glenn Maxwell into the RCB's team, right, and you give him five bowling options around him, Glenn Maxwell is actually a really good sixth bowler. The problem is when you have to use Glenn Maxwell as your fifth bowler or a combination of your fifth bowler. That's where teams come unstuck. That's where Maxwell and Stoyness and Marsh don't work together. Because not one of them is strong enough to be a consistent threat in all conditions that you can bank on them. And that is the difference between Pakistan's bowling attack and Australia's bowling attack. So you can look at both of them and go, look, oh, they both bat to seven or eight and they both have six or seven bowling options. But it's the quality of those bowling options and the batting options that are completely different, right? And it's the same. And if you flip it with Australia and you bring Ashton Agar in, right? Now you have five bowling options and Glenn Maxwell becomes your floater and the bowling becomes really, really quite dangerous because you, you know you've got four really good frontline bowlers. Agar's a really good fifth bowler. Um, and you have Maxwell as your sixth bowler who could spin it the other way. That's actually a really good matchup for Australia. But suddenly you have Ashton Agar, who, despite the fact that everyone keeps telling me he's an all-rounder with a bat, can't hit the ball off the square, right? I mean, he has a really slow strike rate. I, I think it's under 120. Um, uh, and uh, he's a limited batter who, if he's in for a long time, can eventually hit sixes, but he's going to chew up a lot of balls. Um, and, and, and we know that there are problems with the other guys um, down the order. You know, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, Cummins can't hit pace. So can't hit spin or can't even bat against spin, really. Um, and Stark um, is probably a matchup hitter as well. So that is a big difference from what the Pakistan lineup is, where with Pakistan you have five genuine frontline bowlers and then flexibility. You know, I mean, they, they haven't even used Shoah Malik yet, have they? <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Like in, incredible flexibility. Whereas Australia haven't used Mitchell Marsh because they don't think he's any good. Pakistan hasn't used Shah Malik because they haven't needed to, right? It's a completely different structure there. So that's kind of what I'm talking about. And I think that what I'm trying to explain is that the like I don't think that Ben Stokes is a genuine all-rounder in one-day cricket, right? I, I think he is in test cricket, but I'm not sure what his best role is in one-day cricket. In fact, I think when we looked at one-day is Ben Stokes' best bowling has been in the power play, which is really weird because he's not a very good new ball bowler with a red ball. Um, but his best polling has been at the power play when they're never going to use him, England, and they don't need him. They really need him to be good either at the death or in the middle. And as he's shown in uh, T20 cricket and one-day cricket, he's not particularly suited to those roles, right? So trying to use him as your fifth bowler 
almost every team who's ever done that has struggled at one stage or another. Now, sorry, just threw the phone. What you can do, especially in a tournament like this, is cheat for a little while, right? That's the magical thing of this tournament. You know, if you if if this was a um, an IPL franchise or a you know a big bash franchise, it would eventually come a little bit unstuck. But over but in a big uh, but in a short tournament like this, if Mitchell Stark and Pat Cummins and Josh Hazelwood and Zampa all bowl incredibly well, you can do that. But I think that fundamentally that is the big hole within the Australian team is that they do not have five bowlers that they can rely on in any particular game. Um, and if their batting was absolutely incredible or they had a team like England that batted down to nine or ten um, and their batters could go really, really hard and overcome um, the bowling problems, that would be fine. But Australia has basically is going into games with a short batting lineup and a short bowling lineup at a certain, at a certain level. Um, I, I know that sounds weird with Cummins and Stark, but because they are so limited um, in the way that they hit, you know, uh, I mean, put it this way, there, are, there were games in the last World Cup uh, with, you know, uh, Adol Rashid batting at number 11 for England um, in, that, in, in the 2016 World Cup. Um, and we've seen, was it Dwayne Bravo listed at nine? Uh, and well, Hayden Walsh, I think, batted at nine um, in one of the West Indies games. In, in, you know, no disrespect to Pat Cummins and, and Mitchell Stark, who I think are very good at doing what they do, but they're not, they don't have the flexibility or the or this batting skill. I mean, Dwayne Bravo made a made hundred against Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne, didn't he? In a test match, right? Um, you know, completely different level of talent. And that is kind of what you're trying to put together. Um, and Australia is not that far away, but they don't have the ability to ever go into a game with eight batters that make their top order comfortable enough to attack with. And they don't I go into any game with five bowlers that mean that they have a, the strength to be able to use Stoinis and, uh, and, and Maxwell um, when you need them. Because it, it's not like either of them are terrible bowlers, but what you want to be able to do is um, Stoinis is very good in the middle overs at going up against someone like Suresh Reina, right? Because he's a really good bouncer, right? And to get, to not be able to, to not have to worry about bringing back your frontline bowler. Like Stoinis is really good at that sort of stuff. And we used him that way in the big bash at times. Um, and you have that ability to be able to, uh, to use that. But when Stoinis has to make up four of your overs and when Maxwell has to make up four of your overs and you're playing um, and you've got bad matchups against both of them, uh, it's not ideal. And I think that's kind of what I'm trying to say with how these things go together. Um, and uh, the difference in, in structure um, matters over a longer period of time. Um, and you can always ask it. I always say, like, Australia comes into every tournament completely lopsided, but Mitchell Stark's so good that maybe it won't matter. Um, and that could be the case again here. Uh, but beautiful. Thank you for your question. All right. Are you? Are you? You there? Hey, Jared. Yes. Uh, hey, Jared. So my question is, uh, how do you rate this resurgence of Pakistan cricket? I mean, has it been, is it just a one-off case or do you think there is some depth or longevity in their resurgence and, you know, they can go all the way, not in, not just in this tournament, but for a couple of years at least with their form? Well, I mean, they've got a very old team, so I don't know how far forward, like, you know, some of the players that brought back are, you know, older, aren't they? Although there's obviously a young core kind of around them. How do I see Pakistan cricket? Well, it's still a shambles, right? So their selection coming in was all over the place. They stumbled onto this team. They still play in a quite, I still think their top order 
is a bit more defensive than it needs to be. Um, I still think they're playing, trying to keep wickets in hand, where with that batting order, I'm not sure they specifically need to do that. Fundamentally, the problems with Pakistan cricket have never been the top 12 or 15 players at any time. They continually find talented players. The problem is their structure, which Imran Khan is about, you know, is making worse, I would say. Uh, their problem is the level of professionalism that they need to have. Um, they've hired a chairman who is not professional um, at all. Um, uh, their problem is that there's no due diligence done, um, uh, that uh, they don't look after their cricketers correctly. And they are perpetually saved by the fact that Pakistan creates almost separate to the PCB entirely brilliant cricketers. If if that ever stops and the PCB is down to making it uh, them a good team, they're not going to be a good team, not unless they completely um, get better than they are. I mean, their CEO's left basically, you know, and read between the lines. He doesn't doesn't think that they're they're going in the right direction. And in fact, I would 100% agree with him. I haven't talked to Wasim Khan about this, but I would 100% from the outside, it looked like they were making a lot of good positive steps towards being a more professional cricket nation. And then now it looks like their chairman wants to get a lot of views on YouTube. It's not ideal. So is, is it not bad that uh, they have got such a good start that now all these, uh, all these, uh, you know, uh, cracks will be vapored over and, you know, they would continue to go with their formula because it worked. I mean, in case they go through to the finals and win it. Yeah. You could say the same about champions trophy, right? I mean, this is the thing uh, on a, Australia is obviously much more professional and much more well-run, well but Australia and Pakistan have a similar problem in that they keep creating incredible players who can win you major tournaments, and they will continually be there and thereabouts. Like, I don't think Australia was a really good one-day team, and they made the semifinals of the last World Cup, and they were beaten by the winning team, right? And they might, I mean, this time they may not, they may fail again in this World T20, but, you know, the next Champions Trophy, they might make the semifinals again. They host a World T20 at home, they might win a World T20 or come get in the finals. All those things are possible because they keep finding these incredibly talented cricketers. But there are reasons why Australia is not as consistent a nation as they should be. It's because they still believe that sledging helps them. They still believe in the hard man um, rule. They still believe that um, they, they'll be able to find another young prodigy rather than, you know, getting the most out of their middle-aged system. There's a lot of bravado and alpha male stuff within Australian cricket that holds it back. But it's still going to have, you know, David Warner and Steve Smith and Mitchell Stark and the next version of those players that will most probably come through as well, more often than not. Uh, which means that they'll still go, they'll still win a lot at home and they'll still occasionally do really well in tournaments and they'll still probably win a few tournaments, right? Um, and it's the same thing. Realistically, they should have been, almost since since 2007, Australia should have stepped back and gone, let's reevaluate this. We got to, we were the best team in the world because we had the best system in the world um, and we matched that with great natural talent. Can we do that again? And since then, they have not done that. It took them years to even get involved with analytics. And, you know, having a look at the, the, the documentary, I, I mean, I was shocked at how badly they were using analytics uh, and in the brief moments that they put that up on the screen. Um, look, I've, I've got some friends in and around that Australian team and camp and, um, at the moment. Uh, I've shared my frustration with 
how Australia has been assembled for this World Cup, they haven't necessarily disagreed with me. <laughs> in fact, most, more often than not, they're just like, we know. But uh, So in some ways, Australia and Pakistan, they come from completely different angles, but it's a similar sort of thing. But be, this is part of the problem, I think, with the fact that we only have, what, six teams in any uh, that are really, really world-class at one time in our sport. You know, like if we had if we had twelve teams, which we'll, we will get to, obviously, uh, you know, uh, eventually, um, you know, a bit like a football World Cup, where you know, maybe only six teams can win it, but maybe twelve teams in any tournament can make the semifinals, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, if we get to a point there within cricket, maybe that just means that Pakistan and Australia have to be a bit more sensible. But at the moment, I'm not sure they do, and they're going to continually get away with it. Um, and they're going to keep coming up with talented players because their grassroots system, you know, street cricket in, in Pakistan and uh, and club cricket in Australia will continue to produce players. Um, but they might fall behind teams with better structures like, you know, West Indies and New Zealand now and um, – in, um, not West Indies, sorry, England, New Zealand and um, India who seem to have better structures on, on how to maximise their talent at the top level. Uh, great question though. Thank you. Uh, one last person is here. Oh, it's just Fahan again. Fahan, you've got 12 seconds to ask your question and then I'm out. Yeah, it was just a follow-up question to the IP question. Said, like, for me, CPLs is very interesting because a few of the franchise owners of IPL own CPL teams. They can have, like, like for example, KKR can have Pankratesh here playing CPL. I think that and a, such an arrangement can be arranged, right? Because mm-hmm. it will help because I like the culture of power rating in CPL. Mm-hmm. So... So are you think that can be done in the future? Yeah. So, so essentially what they're trying to do is they're trying to set up not quite academy systems, but I was involved with one of the teams when they were going to the CPL. They realized that's where the talent is, but also realized that they can train their coaches up and their support staff up. And so their coaches and support staff can have access to other leagues. Um, and especially for the local Indian coaches and support staff it's really important for them to get out of the ipl and see what the rest of the uh the world is doing um and learn things and talk to people and meet people i almost think that every ipl team should be allowed to sign two overseas players to a contract for a certain amount of money outside of the auction if they're willing to develop them themselves then that will get to a point where teams will really start to invest more but look IPL owners already own teams in the CPL. IPL owners are already looking at major league cricket in the USA. IPL owners are already looking at other leagues um, around the world and other teams around the world are doing this. Yeah, UAE. So they're all thinking of doing those things. But it's a bit tricky because you you can develop a player brilliantly um, and then they still end up getting bought by another team at the auction, right? So the only way you can do it really at the moment is you have to buy a young a bunch of young West Indians, like maybe two or three, which is quite risky, at the start of an auction cycle and then develop them throughout the three or four years. So that's why Rucking Cornwall hasn't been picked up is because people know it will take maybe a year or two to get him to the level that you want him to be for the IPL. Um, and But you'd have to get that at the start of the auction cycle and all those sorts of things. Uh, Rodman Powell is another player. Um, Obed uh, oh, sorry, not Odeon Smith is probably another player. These are all IPL-level talents, but they're not finished quality ready for IPL um, at the moment. And so you'd have to develop them. So you buy the team, but then if you develop them and they have a breakout year in the CPL and then they play in the 100 um, or the Big Bash and then they go, for, you've developed them and another team has ended up getting them, 
that's the catch-22 with how the, uh, the system works at the moment, which is a bit of a shame. But thank you, everyone, for coming on to this chat. Remember, this is on Spotify Greenroom, so you can download the Spotify Greenroom app, find me at Jared Kimber, and come on, and then you can ask questions. If you don't want to do that, or the time zone doesn't work, we usually do them on Thursdays now. We've moved the, the, these chats to Thursdays. You can always ask questions on Patreon. So on Patreon, I think it's the second tier. Um, it'll say in the benefits, and you get one of your benefits is to do that. Also, we are adding to Patreon a Discord channel. So for anyone there who is interested in that sort of stuff on Patreon, there's also access to the podcasts uh, beforehand and without ads, all those sorts of things is available on the Patreon. And there's also now the buy me a coffee option if that works better for you. And some people just seem to like that more than Patreon as well. But big thanks to Manscaped. As I said, if your balls are dewier than you'd want them to be, use the lawnmower 4.0 with Manscaped. Use the code REDINCA, all one word. You get 20% off and free worldwide delivery. I have used it. it is sensational. It's one of those things when I got it, I was like, I probably won't use it. And now I do. And a big shout out to Bodyline t-shirts as well. Um, my t-shirt today, if you're watching this on YouTube, is, oh, it's the offside one, which is uh, having an off day. Uh, it's not my favorite, but they do. Uh, the WG Grace in the Pedalo t-shirt is absolutely exceptional. So big shout out to everyone who came on the podcast today, everyone who's listening on Red Inca. And uh, also if you're looking at me on YouTube, thanks for coming. Podcast Network.